Well, good morning, St. Paul's. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to gather with you together in person today in the house of God. And a warm welcome to those of you who are joining us online. G.K. Chesterton, the great British writer, Riley noted, The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same people. Now, if my neighbors are watching today, I totally don't mean you. We're continuing in our summer preaching series, looking at the parables of Jesus, as stories with spiritual dynamite just waiting to be exploded in our lives. And today, with one of the most famous, the Good Samaritan, we encounter a parable that contains both a spiritual and a practical twist. And if you're new and spiritually searching, uh, wondering what it would be like to uh, learn how to follow Jesus, this morning, you'll get a glimpse of the lifestyle, the orientation of the heart that uh, Jesus offers. And uh, for those of you who have already committed to learning how to follow Jesus, then listen to this as we prepare to unpack the spiritual and practical twist found in this famous tale. Inspired by the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, Princeton psychologists uh, John Darley and Dan Bastin uh, conducted a fascinating uh, experiment in the 1970s, studying how students at Princeton Theological Seminary behaved when they were asked to deliver a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And uh, the students were given uh, a sermon uh, we're going to give a sermon in a studio across campus and be evaluated by their professors. And uh, the researchers were curious to find out if time pressure would affect the seminary student's supposedly helpful nature. And as each student finalized their preparation in a classroom, the researchers inflicted an element of time constraint, uh, giving each of them different amounts of time to make it across campus to deliver their sermon. Uh, some students, they told them, you're already late. Others, they said, you got a few minutes to get there. And still other students, they said, you've got tons of time. Don't worry. And as each student then walked from the classroom to the studio, they encountered a victim in a deserted alleyway. And the victim, actually an associate of the professors, appeared destitute, slouched over, coughing, uh, clearly in need of assistance. And the seminarians were thus offered a chance to apply what they were about to preach. Depressingly, only 10% of the students in the high hurry situation uh, stopped to help. 45% in the medium hurry and 63% of the students in the low hurry situations helped the victims. And here's the official conclusion of the researchers. A person not in a hurry may stop and offer help to a person in distress. A person in a hurry is likely to keep going. Ironically, he's likely to keep going even if he's hurrying to speak on the parable of the Good Samaritan, thus inadvertently confirming the point of the parable. And here's the money shot. Thinking, thinking about the Good Samaritan did not increase helping behavior, but being in a hurry decreased it. Thinking, 
about the Good Samaritan did not change behavior. Let's not kid ourselves. Preaching this sermon will not necessarily change my behavior. And for you, whether you're in person or gathered online, listening to this sermon, no matter how attentively, will not change your behavior. There has to be something more. Our surprising and our surprising spiritual and practical twist today. But let's first remind ourselves of the contours of this most famous of tales. So we have a lawyer, I'm married to one of those, uh, who stands up in public to test Jesus, uh, to trip him into saying something outrageous, exposing him as a religious fraud. First verse, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus pushes right back. The only way to answer that question would be to either spend a week reciting the whole body of Mosaic regulations or to give a summary of them. And the man obviously took Jesus to mean the latter. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You got it, says Jesus. If you do that, you will live. And based on the original question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Presumably, Jesus meant, do this and you'll receive salvation. You will experience the wonder of knowing and being with God. And you will experience the joy and beauty of being with God after you die. Do this. Love God and love your neighbor and you will live. This was Jesus at his most clever. And here comes the spiritual twist. One of the problems with moralism, the idea that you can earn God's love and a good life by being nice and moral, is that it's deeply hypocritical. The walk simply cannot live up to the talk. Jewish religious leaders were experts at trying to keep the law of Moses. For an example, in an effort to uphold the law in tithing, giving 10% of your income to the work of God, they even tithed their cooking herbs, mint and cumin. By devoting themselves to this level of diligence, they patted themselves on the back that they were keeping themselves in God's good books. Checkmate, says Jesus. Have you really, really looked at the kind of life that these laws are calling you to? How about that fine print? of what it means to love God with every fiber of your being. Jesus pushes. When did you last meet the needs of your neighbors with all the joy, patience, and hard work that you put into meeting your own needs? Redecorating your apartment, connecting with your friends, investing your income, caring for your mental health, planning your holiday. If you can give God a life like that, meeting the needs of your neighbors like that, Absolutely, you will inherit eternal life. This is, of course, an impossibly high standard. Jesus knows this, and it's why he turns the tables on the lawyer. Jesus wants the lawyer to realize there is no way to live this kind of life. The be a nice person and it will all work out approach to life is fundamentally doomed to failure. Because we will never be able to love God like that. We will never be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Jesus was pushing this educated and sophisticated man to admit his need for the grace and mercy of God. And Jesus is undoubtedly calling us to shape our daily lives in a very specific way, which we're going to look at in a minute. But the spiritual twist here is that ironically, the call to live this kind of life is also meant to show us how we will never fully succeed at it and must reach out for the mercy and grace of God. The rhythm of life is not try, succeed, feel good about yourself. No, it's try, succeed and fail, reach out for the mercy of God. Try, succeed and fail, reach out for the grace of God. The lawyer, well, he's thrown off his game by Jesus's spiritual twist, verse 29, but wanting to justify himself. Jesus's first attempt at getting this man to reach out for God's grace, to stop trying to earn his own salvation, it hadn't done the trick because the lawyer pressed. But who is my neighbor? He still wants to keep his be nice, succeed, and it'll be all right approach to life intact. Surely, he implied, surely you don't mean that I have to love and meet the needs of everyone. I have to keep some healthy personal boundaries here, Jesus. And so Jesus tells a story. A Jewish man was riding through a mountainous remote area where he was robbed, beaten, and left half dead. Along came first a priest, let's call him Jenny, and then a Levite. How about Tyler for the Levite? And we're told that both Jenny and Tyler passed by on the other side, probably because it would have been dangerous to stop on a desolate road, and touching a dying man would have made them ritually unclean, and we would have been unable to do our day jobs. Along comes a Samaritan that most bitter of enemies with the Jews. Yet it is the Samaritan who stops, gives emergency aid, uh, takes him to an inn, pays the innkeeper to look after him until he's fully recovered, not an unsubstantial amount of money. Jesus' story gives an answer in two parts to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? One, how you have to love, and two, who you have to love. For Jesus' love of neighbor clearly means action, meeting the physical, material, and economic needs of other people. Full stop. Nike would be proud. Just do it, Jesus is saying. That is how you love your neighbor. Jesus would not allow the lawyer to limit the implications of his command to love. Loving like this means being sacrificially involved with other people setting aside our material desires to meet the needs of others. Just do it, says Jesus. Now he keeps going. And now we have the practical twist to the story. Jesus also refuses to be fenced in on who we love. We might be able to wrap our minds around the kind of love that Jesus calls us to, but we tend to think of neighbors as basically uh, people like us, right? People of the same social and economic condition. Overwhelmingly, 
We help our family and friends first. No dice, says Jesus. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more startling first century way to name that anyone, regardless of politics, race, or religion, anyone is your neighbor. And the practical twist gets even twistier. Remember that Jesus was telling this story to a lawyer. I think we need to call the lawyer Tim. It's my husband's name. Imagine if Jesus had told this story instead. A Samaritan man was beaten up and left half dead on the road. Then a Jewish man, whom the lawyer could obviously identify with, came along the road. He saw him, had compassion on him, and looked after him. Now, now we would say to the lawyer, there's your answer. Why, even an enemy like the Samaritan is your neighbor if he's in need. But Jesus didn't tell that story because that version of the story wouldn't have impacted the lawyer. He would have said, what a ridiculous story. What Jew with any integrity would act in such a foolish way? It's dangerous on the road. I would have broken the laws on ritual purity. You have such a totally unrealistic view on life, Jesus. But Jesus puts the Jewish lawyer on the road the one bleeding to death, the one who is in need. Along comes a hated Samaritan. What does the Jew want from the Samaritan? Help, of course, and everyone's surprised the Samaritan delivers. In a sense, Jesus is asking, now, friend, who was a neighbor to you? And the lawyer has to admit that if he had been the needy one on the road, being offered love from someone whom he would have expected hatred, of course he would have accepted it. Only then does Jesus say, go and do likewise. He'd made his case. The lawyer submits. Your neighbor is anyone in need. And here we get to the heart of the problem. Not a single one of us here, in person or online, not a single one of us uh, knew Long-time member, no one lives like this, not even close. It's why, thank goodness, we have confession every week. You see, Jesus is teaching that a lack of concern for the poor and the marginalized is not some minor lapse, but instead reveals something seriously wrong with my heart and yours. If a heart is not bent towards justice and mercy, not bent towards our neighbor, then it is a heart that in fact has not experienced the compassion of God. Essentially, we ignore the poor and the broken when we are blind to our own spiritual poverty and brokenness. The spiritual and the practical twist have just joined. We ignore the poor. We ignore our neighbors when we are blind to our own deep need for mercy and grace. So what to do? Because just thinking about the problem is not going to fix it. Now, we have an advantage that the lawyer does not have. As people learning how to follow Jesus, we've learned that we are the man dying on the road. Spiritually, we are the poor and the bleeding. We are the ones who've pushed God out from the center of our lives. But as New York writer Tim Keller pens... 
when Jesus came into our dangerous world, he came down our road. And though we'd been his enemies, he was moved with compassion by our plight. He came to us and saved us, not merely at the risk of his life, as in the case of the Good Samaritan, but at the cost of his life. On the cross, he paid a debt we could never have paid ourselves. Jesus is the Great Samaritan to whom the Good Samaritan points. If we wish to join that long arc of justice and compassion in the world, our hearts and our wills need to be changed in order to lead lives of neighbor love. You cannot give what you do not have. Only when we ourselves have experienced the unmerited, undeserved, sacrificial love of God in Jesus Christ will we be willing to risk and sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others in need. You don't need this sermon to know that your neighbor is all around you. But you do need, just like I do, the grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father. So let's end by pondering the state of our own hearts this morning, of being honest in the soaring beauty of this place. In what ways do we still need to be moved by our own spiritual poverty and brokenness? Are we hungry for the mercy and forgiveness of God in our lives? These questions are the starting point. They, they cannot be skipped over, says Jesus. They're, they're foundational. If we're to join God in the project of restoring the world and this city of Toronto to beauty and justice. And St. Paul's Bloor Street has been part of that restoration project of God since 1841. And we're going to have an opportunity in a, just a few moments to do that right here this morning. For some of you, maybe those of you gathering online, it'll be for the first time. For others, it's part of that daily rhythm of reaching out to the great Samaritan for the grace and mercy needed to enable you and me to be the good Samaritan when we walk out those doors. Try, succeed and fail. Reach out for the mercy and grace of God because it's there for all of us. Thanks be to God. Amen.